So that was kind of the gateway drug, right? Snowboarding and working at the ski area and thinking like, I love this lifestyle. I love, and that to me transitioned so well into seasonal work because by the time that the ski season was getting towards its end, you know, you've worked like probably four or five months at this point. It's been really intense. It's been really packed in. So by the time you're finally starting to get sick of all of it, you're done. And you get to look forward to doing something new for the summer. This is the Seasonals Podcast, a show where we talk to people living the seasonal lifestyle. We take an in-depth look at the decision points they've encountered along the way. here today with Krista Dixon. How are you today, Krista? I'm doing fantastic. And where in the world are you? Oh gosh, I'm currently in Cedro Woolley, Washington. Do you know where that is? I do not. Um, It is the gateway to the North Cascades and it's about a half an hour south of Bellingham. So that's a pretty good landmark, Northwest Washington. Yeah, I know where Bellingham is. In this sort of last calendar year, a lot of seasonals haven't really had a whole lot of job opportunities, especially people I know that depend on the cruise ship industry and all that, and then mm-hmm. just the residual effect from that. But it sounds like you still had quite a quite a year, and right now you're doing seasonal work as well. Can you can you sort of tell me what you're doing, what you're doing now, and what you did last summer? Yeah, so right now I'm actually staring at a giant textbook that's talking about beta blockers and ACE inhibitors because I'm in nursing school. And But kind of the bigger picture is I'm doing a lot of things while I'm studying. So um, I'm currently teaching intro avalanche courses up at Mount Baker. Uh, That's a volunteer position. So in exchange for, say, like six classes throughout the season, uh, I get a pass for free. So that's sweet. Um, And those are just, they're not the airy certified classes. They're just um, kind of a way for Mount Baker to educate the community. Because, I mean, especially this winter, we've seen a ton of avalanche deaths already. We've had a lot of close encounters in the Northwest as well. Um, So that's how I'm supplementing my time as a nursing student. And then last summer, um, I'm really fortunate because I have worked for a sea kayaking outfit in the San Juan Islands, and that's um, also in Northwest Washington. So I've worked for them for six or seven years now. And so I had a job this summer. I was kind of one of four multi-day guides that actually had employment and we could count on that. Normally my summers start sometime at the end of ski season and run until late September. So sea kayaking has a really big season and 
the peak of that season is July, August, and for me, September as well. Um, but this year, with everything being so unsure, uh, I, my first trip was like July 1st. And then I actually ended after six weeks. So it was a much shorter season. Uh, in addition to the sea kayaking, my company offers multi-day road cycling tours. So I, over the last several years, especially have been mostly focused on doing the road cycling. And I actually prefer that to the sea kayaking because I'm, you know, moving quite a bit more, uh, the cardio aspect of biking prevents me from gaining weight on what we call the crystal seas diet. So I work for crystal seas kayaking and we feed our clients really well, but we also as guides eat really well. So I really enjoy the biking aspect because it, it keeps me in better shape. Um, in addition, I don't know. Have you ever been sea kayaking? I have. Yeah. Up in Alaska. Totally. And it can get really kind of hectic pretty quickly. Most of the people that come out on the sea kayaking tours with us don't know how to kayak, especially for just the day trips. We get a lot of wind and we have really strong currents in the San Juan Islands. And so taking really beginner kayakers on multi-day trips in that environment is stressful, like more stressful than imagining my clients getting hit by a car which has never happened but trying to like be the mama duck to maybe four double kayaks in crazy weather uh, is less ideal to me than biking around the island with people i had a tour that i was a guide for once in alaska where it was a family of doctors from new jersey which meant they had no clue how to kayak but they yeah. thought they knew how to kayak and it was just an absolute nightmare. I'm lucky the owner of the company was with me that day. So he believed me when I told him like what happened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've had several of those situations as well. I've had dads yell at me because they don't trust my advice. They think that they can navigate better than me and we get in difficult conditions and it's just like the family melts down, you know, dad is screaming. And then the daughter's just like mad at him for the rest of the trip because he told her to shut up. I've had a situation where we did like a mile and a half crossing to another Island and it was beautiful, sunny, gorgeous day. You know, I was listening to our little VHF radio to get the NOAA report of you know, the weather for the day. And there was supposed to be a small craft advisory beginning like later that afternoon. And my, um, my boss was with me on that trip. And I remember looking at her and saying, did you just hear that? There, a small craft advisory is supposed to start at two o'clock today. And she looked up at the sky and it was beautiful and blue. I mean, the, the water was completely glassy. She was like, yeah, I'll believe that when I see it. We went over to the island, we set up, we had lunch with our guests, and sure enough, bang on two o'clock, the wind kicked up, and we had like three to five foot seas on the way back. And again, luckily I was with my boss because we could kind of each team up with 
a boat with clients in it and guide them back and everyone was safe. But um, my poor clients, they were so scared. I thought that they were going to cry actually. And it's good that she was the one that made the call and not you. Yeah, because if it were just me out there, I probably would have made a more conservative decision. And I find that I'm super conservative all the time. Like this goes back to avalanche awareness and I'm a wilderness first responder. I have been since 2011. I would just rather be safe than sorry. And sometimes that probably impacts my clients negatively because especially when sea kayaking. And that's another thing about managing sea kayaking situations is it's so weather dependent. So if you take the safe route, it's often the more boring route. Um, And you have a less chance of seeing killer whales or, you know, it's a, it's an out and back instead of more like a loop and you're keeping people safe and they don't see the big waves and the wind and the current and everything that's out in the place you're avoiding. And so it's kind of boring for them. It's hard to even manage their expectations. Yeah. For you, you know, it's a whole season or multiple seasons. You've seen the worst, you've seen the best, you know, that there's, you know, tomorrow's, if today sucks, tomorrow's probably going to be good, but for them, they only get one shot. So they want you to kind of be a little risky and you're like, Nope. I know what happens when you do that. Yeah, I know you're not going to like it. Um, There's a technique I've started where we launch from our own private docks in this cove that's pretty protected. So now what we'll do is we'll go out around the point and get into the main current, get into the wind. And people realize like they actually can't paddle against it. It's really difficult. And so you give them that kind of little taste of, what it's really like out there. And then you come back in into the cove and go back into, into the bay quite a bit. So let's jump back to the AVI courses from a guy that just started skiing. Most of the avalanches I've seen are me falling down the mountain. What yeah. <laughs> is sort of uh, what is that class like on your side and sort of what are all the different things that you are trying to teach the, the people there? Uh, Yeah, so we have two different levels of classes that we offer. This is directly through Mount Baker. So you sign up on their website and all of your instructors are volunteers like me. Uh, And we have had a lot of experience and especially in the Mount Baker area. So from my point of view, I've been riding up there ton this season. I'm really aware of what's happening in the snowpack I know the train really well, and I've seen trends over the last decade plus of what happens when we get a lot of snow, what happens when we get a lot of rain, and what happens when the temperatures are really cold. So our 100 level course, it's not like the Airy 100. It's focused primarily on partner rescue. So what we're teaching people is how to use their beacons, probes, and shovels and starting to just barely get into the bigger picture stuff. And I taught a course two days ago. Yeah, two days ago. And all four of my participants had never been in the backcountry before. They had never used their avalanche gear in the snow before. So that's kind of really what we're focused on is we have like a short PowerPoint. We have them watch um, 
the BCA videos. And those talk about the really like precise techniques of using the beacon to find your partner who's buried, using the probe correctly, strategically, efficiently to find exactly where they are underneath that snow. And then using a really important digging technique to get to them as quickly and efficiently as possible. And all of this searching changes whether, you know, depending on the size of the search party. So if you and me are out in the backcountry riding and I get stuck in an avalanche, then it's your sole responsibility to find me with your beacon and probe and dig me out on your own. When we teach these classes, we have our students really get in there. So I'm having them dig out packs that have been buried like several times and we're doing other digging drills. So they really get used to how much energy it takes and how exhausting it is to try and dig out somebody who's buried. And it gives them a really, a much clearer picture of how these situations can be so bad and so time sensitive. And it also teaches them like maybe you want a group that's bigger than just you and your partner. I I always think that three is the magic number um, and four is also great. And then, so that's just the, the 100 level course. Then going into our 200 level course, we start to pull in some of the bigger picture ideas. So we start looking at terrain, how to assess it for its pitch and its likelihood of sliding, uh, how to recognize terrain traps is a huge part of that. Uh, we start getting into group dynamics because if you've ever done anything in the backcountry with anybody else, you know how important it is to really trust your partner and have a good sense of what's going on in your group. And then we go into more complex burial situations like partial burials or multiple person burials uh, and how to ride safely in your group in avalanche terrain. And also how to ride safely if the avalanche danger is really high because that can happen unexpectedly. So that's kind of like the broad idea of what I'm teaching. So are you doing the the PowerPoint there at the site? We used to. Uh, we used to have the entire morning. We'd start at like 8.30 or 9, do a PowerPoint until about noon, and then get out and start working on our skills. Um, with COVID, we're not meeting in person. And we're having our students follow like a self-guided PowerPoint before they show up for class. Oh, okay. So they're doing the, the sort of screen time by themselves before they get there. Yeah. And, you know, it actually probably works in their favor. Normally in the classroom sessions, like last winter, you get me talking and I don't stop. So we could sit and talk all morning. but. The scope for the 100 level class, especially, is really just learning how to use the gear. So if they can kind of do that homework beforehand, it's almost better because then we have a little bit more time to focus on digging in the snow. Um, There's also a really, really good online tool that I just discovered this season. And it's on a website called knowbeforeyougo.org. And they have a free online module that takes you through 
really, really pertinent information to backcountry travel. They kind of have five steps. It's um, get the gear, get the training, get the forecast, get the picture, as in the bigger picture, and lastly, get out of harm's way. So they have five specific modules tailored to each of these steps. And it's incredible. They have interactive stuff. They quiz you along the way. They've got all these great videos. So for anybody who's interested in getting into backcountry terrain, and this applies to snowmobilers and snowshoers, we have a disproportionate amount of snowshoe deaths and they're, they're getting higher and higher because more people are just interested in getting out and snowshoers and snowmobilers might not think that they need this information because they're just out walking around or just out on their sled. Um, but it's just as important as backcountry skiers and snowboarders because you're putting yourself in that terrain. So knowbeforeyougo.org, it's an awesome five module free, basically online class that takes you through all the important information. And I think that that combined with what we're offering at Mount Baker, the 100 and the 200 level course is on par with getting your ARI certified uh, 100 level course. Definitely look at it. It's awesome. And um, sometimes I see a lot of snowshoers out in the backcountry at Mount Baker and they'll say, oh, hey, yeah, I've been thinking about taking an avalanche course and I have just started directing them to that website because it's just got, it's just such a wealth of information. So you went back and forth between a sea kayak guide in the San Juan islands and uh, working at Mount Baker in the ski area. Sort of tell me about how, how that began and then run through the seasons and how that, how they went. Yeah, I am. Um... I graduated from Western Washington University in 2013. Um, I graduated with a bachelor's in outdoor recreation management. So you um, interviewed my good friend Miranda maybe last year about this time. And that's where I met her. After I graduated, like while I was studying at Western, I was doing a lot of seasonal work anyways. I was kind of doing odd jobs in the summers. And then I was actually doing work study during school, which was nice. Um, but once I graduated, I was like, sweet, the world is my oyster. And while I was going to school, I never thought I was going to be a guide. That wasn't necessarily like my goal for getting my bachelor's in recreation. I think a lot of my classmates did have that goal, but I just kind of fell into kayak guiding. I, I applied for a wilderness therapy company um, that our program had strong ties to, and that was out in Minnesota. So I was really interested in working with at-risk populations and working in wilderness therapy in general. And so the summer of 2014, so actually a year after I graduated, is when I started working for them. They offer trips in all different kind of areas. They do a lot of backpacking trips, horseback riding trips, and canoe trips, uh, especially out in Minnesota. They've got tons of rivers and the backcountry wilderness area. That's a huge canoeing area. 
but I was hired on, I did training. And at the end of training, they picked six guides to live and work at base camp in Northern Wisconsin, where the Apostle Islands are. And that's where I started sea kayaking. So I had never actually kayaked before. They had an American Canoe Association instructor come out and kind of teach us for a week. And by the end of the week, I was capable of co-guiding trips with other instructors who you know, knew more than me. So I was a first-year guide. I was a first-year kayaker. And it was definitely overwhelming and super rewarding. Um, what's cool about, we were on Lake Superior. And what's cool about that area is it also gets a lot of wind and it affects the current of the water. And Lake Superior is super long. And when the wind comes in, it's got a lot of free open area to pick up space. So if the weather is looking like it's clouding over at all, there's usually this kind of indication that a windstorm is on the way. And it could be super blue, beautiful skies above you, but an hour later, the weather has changed and you've got crazy wind and you've got a lot of kayaks. You know, our, our group sizes for those trips was up to 21 people. And so you were taking care of a lot of boats and big boats. We had three person kayaks for that. Um, So that's kind of where I got my start. Following that summer, I came back to work at Mount Baker. So I worked in food service the entire time I was up there, which was awesome because you normally had the mornings to go shred pow. And that was really my motivation for working up there. So I came back, I worked at Mount Baker and I had a friend up at Mount Baker who was working as a sea kayak guide in the San Juan Islands. And that's really close to us. That's just off the coast in Washington here. And so talking with him about my summer out in the Midwest, you know, it was lovely, but the the Midwest is a bit flat. So I'm a mountain girl and it was kind of hard to me for me to be out there with all the mosquitoes and kind of way far away from family. So he suggested that I apply to the company that he worked for and did the multi-day trips in the San Juan Islands. And so I applied and I got hired and I have worked almost every summer in the San Juan Islands since I think that was 2015 is where I started. You went into the Mount Baker because you loved skiing you wanted to get out there. You went into the the sea kayaking sort of at first you stumbled onto it and then your friend told you about the, uh, the company that was in San Juan. Why, what was your draw towards the wilderness therapy originally? Yeah, I had an incredible instructor professor at Western. Um, he basically, when you study recreation at Western, it's not, you're not learning any hard skills. So you're not kayaking or rafting or rock climbing or any of that. It's a, it's more like a management and business degree than anything else. And there's four sections of the degree. What I did was outdoor. We also had community recreation, therapeutic recreation, and then tourism. And 
with a focus in ecotourism. So Miranda, actually, she did the ecotourism route and I did the outdoor route. Um, the professor who was responsible for kind of the higher level outdoor programming courses, he is, he's like the guru of wilderness therapy. If you Google wilderness therapy, like the first 10 hits will have his name on it. And that's like, if you're looking at, um, evaluation and stuff like that. So he's highly involved in evaluating wilderness therapy programs to see if they're working. And that that's actually something that we studied in recreation was program evaluation, statistical analysis, making sure we're asking the right questions, making sure we're designing our programs so that they reach the goals that we want them to meet. And Basically, our final quarter of the program, it was our kind of second quarter of outdoor recreation programming, and we mostly focused on wilderness therapy, which was super cool. Wilderness therapy has so many different facets to it. It's got tons of different ways that you can run these programs. It's got tons of different kind of environments that you can do that in. You can have a base camp model or you can have an expedition model or you can have outpatient model. There's lots of just facets to wilderness therapy. So that's what really sparked my interest in that. I think that after that quarter and and when we graduated, the entire kind of cohort of outdoor specific recreation majors kind of walked away with this higher understanding of social justice and what it means to provide recreation to everybody. We were all very inspired. Like it was just the most inspiring kind of quarter we could have asked for. And the whole program was really, we did this awesome management class where our instructor would present us with case studies about how managers have, you know, treated their employees. And so we would work together in groups to decide, like, as the manager, what do you do in this situation? We were often surprised at what actually happened. We got a lot of really pertinent case studies to teaching us how to be compassionate, ethical, and just all-around good managers. Leaving college, I was inspired to like, do good for the world. And instead of focusing my outdoor energy on self-fulfillment, it was more focusing on how can I give back to other people. Is there one of those case studies that sort of sticks out that you can talk about? Yes, actually. There's one that has like stuck with me this entire time. It was a case study about a woman who had some health issues in, it was a small office. Um, So this is more like very focused on management and less focused on outdoor, right? So she had a lot of health issues. Um, She needed to get surgery. She couldn't walk very well. And it was affecting her performance at her work. And of course, she had insurance through the company, but it wasn't going to cover anything or cover everything. Like it wasn't going to cover her 
transportation after she got surgery. She was going to need to be in a wheelchair. It wasn't going to cover an electric wheelchair for her. So we break it down and we dive right in. We get into our groups. We start talking like, what do you do as the manager? We all come up with different ideas and we present them to the class. And then our instructor would say, well, so here's what happened. The manager of the small office, you know, there's like four people in the office. Manager of the office um, rented her an electric wheelchair um, so that she could, you know, go get the surgery and have transportation afterwards. He rented her a van to use and she was able to go. And then he gave her paid time off while she went and got the surgery. So that was like the first step. Then when she comes back, you know, she's in so much pain. She still cannot function to the level that is needed to do her job. And she's in so much pain that it's preventing her from going to the bathroom. So she's sitting at her desk and she's relieving herself at her desk, like using briefs. And it's like stinking up the entire office and it's become a bigger problem. And so then we break up again into our small groups. So what do you do? And we all present to the class. So there's maybe six to eight proposals that, you know, six to eight groups that are giving proposals. And we all kind of come to terms with the fact that, well, we've done everything that we can for this woman. Maybe there's, I don't know, something else that we could do, but it might be time to realistically ask this employee if she can continue fulfilling her job. And if she can't, then she needs to resign. And I remember my instructor being like pretty disappointed in all of us because as it turns out in the real life situation, the manager helped move her desk closer to the bathroom, helped do all these things like, And again, maybe like gave her some PTO so that she could fully recover. And of course, there's more to this story. Like she's got a family she's got to take care of. Her husband recently lost his job. Like there's so much happening. And what we learned in that is that as a manager in any situation, that situation really respected the employee and respected their humanity and was there to completely support them. It was pretty much this incredible story of compassion where as, you know, 21 year old college students, you just had this idea of the way that the world was and getting outside of that box and thinking about, you know, your human being and like employees and coworkers and colleagues as in a whole new light. Yeah. Respecting their humanity, you know, trying to help them um, in a dignified way. And uh, I'm going to guess the company she worked for wasn't Amazon. No, I mean, it was a small like local company and that's the thing. Like it was a small employee owned business, like not employee owned business, but, yeah, you know, the owner of the company was there working every day. And yeah, there's definitely a lot, a big difference between that and some somewhere like Amazon. So you say that one stuck with you for a long time. Are there have there been moments uh 
later in your career that that sort of came up and guided a decision you made? Just remembering that everybody has their story, right? And that is so cliche, but you try to just remember to be compassionate towards people, even if they're not being too nice to you. I am a really sensitive person. So I pick up on people's moodiness and I have been trying not to take it personally. And I think that goes along with everything. Like everybody's got their story just because they're being short with you or they're upset or they're not talking to you doesn't mean it has anything to do with you. And remembering that about people is really important. As far as I I haven't been in that management position to have that more like calculated adaptation of that. But I am going into nursing. And so I think I'll have a lot of time and energy spent towards compassion and treating people with respect, respecting who they are, and trying to give them that dignified care that they deserve. That's going to be huge for me as a nurse. You know, you, you see people that don't take care of themselves and have never tried to take care of themselves and you're there trying to take care of them more than they've ever tried. And there's a lot of nurses who will shrug those patients off, um, but they still deserve every level of care that anybody else receives. Yeah. All those issues in, it sounds like in nursing are much closer to the surface. You can see a lot more of the root, a lot more of the, the behavior. And so that'll, that'll certainly test that aspect of you for sure. So tell me about the, the Mount Baker ski area. It sounds like that that's one of the longest uh, seasonal jobs you had. And it sounds like there's a lot of history there between you and the, the location. I didn't necessarily grow up skiing. You know, a lot of people started when they could barely walk, but I started in high school when my friends who were into snowboarding kind of convinced me to get into it as well. I never had a season's pass. Like I would just go, you know, a handful of times every year. And when I was a senior in high school, I was actually taking courses at the community college through this awesome program called Running Start, where high school students can like start to earn college credit while fulfilling their high school requirements as well. And during that period, I had so much free time because you go from being a five day a week high school student to like a two or three day a week college student. And so I started working up at Mount Baker because again, still couldn't afford a season's pass, but I knew that I could work part-time and that would get me the free pass. So I started working as a table busser up there and I was 17 years old. It's funny when I think about like all the different snowboard gear that I've had throughout the last decade, what I started at and how much it's changed now. And so, you know, I was just a little grom and I loved it. Some of my greatest friends I met during that year and that was my introduction to the community. So Mount Baker is at the end of a dead end highway. And the closest that you can kind of like stay or live to Mount Baker is about 30 minutes down the road in this tiny little town called Glacier, Washington. 
And Glacier has like, I don't know, 500 full-time residents. And in the winter, it's like a thousand or maybe, yeah, probably a thousand. And so my introduction to that community was really pivotal for probably everything, like probably going to college to study recreation and knowing that I wanted to be in the outdoors. I remember like I grew up in church with my family. And when I started working up at Mount Baker, I had to work on the weekends. So I stopped going to church and it was actually a pretty good transition for me because I was kind of ready to stop going to church anyway. And I had this kind of get out of jail free card as far as my mom was concerned. So I started spending my weekends up at Mount Baker and that became my church. And that became like what was really important to me. Um, Even though I was just like a table busser, I got to ski all the time. And, you know, the next year when I came back and I was in college, um, I knew that I wanted to be in the recreation program already. I just hadn't quite started it. And you just keep getting deeper into that community. And then my job up there started changing as well. I started cooking a lot of burgers and French fries. There was a season up there that I was the breakfast cook in the lodge. And then I transitioned to being the breakfast cook for employees. That was really the sweetest gig of all. If anybody gets the opportunity at any ski area to be the employee cook, you basically, you're cooking for the employees before they have to go to work. And then you're cooking for them after they get done from work. So that entire time in between when the ski area is open, I got to go snowboarding or I got to do whatever I wanted. And then you're up at the ski area all the time. So you really know what's happening with the snow. I had, I always had a lot of friends texting me saying, what's it like up there? What's it like up there? Is there as much pow as we think there is? And then you kind of get, get to keep your friends updated. And there's basically no reason not to go snowboarding because you're there. Mount Baker is pretty unique in that it still offers every employee a free breakfast every morning. So that was my job, Um, especially on Saturdays and Sundays. We would see 100 people come through in the morning and we're cooking short order items. So, you know, everybody gets their eggs the way that they like them. And we have French toast and pancakes and biscuits and gravy that are made fresh every morning, bacon and sausage and Usually we find some time to bake stuff, Um, fresh fruit, coffee, bagels, all of that stuff. So that was kind of the gateway drug, right? Snowboarding and working at the ski area and thinking like, I love this lifestyle. I love, and that to me transitioned so well into seasonal work because by the time that the ski season was getting towards its end. You know, you've worked like probably four or five months at this point. It's been really intense. It's been really packed in. So by the time you're finally starting to get sick of all of it, you're done. And you get to look forward to doing something new for the summer. Do you remember your first day working up there at Mount Baker? Oh my gosh. Yes. Yep, I do. Gosh, we were wearing red polo shirts. That was kind of the uniform at the time so that our managers could easily spot us to clean up any mess that could come our way. 
I started working up there with a couple other friends, like another girl who went to a different high school. Her and I started as table bussers together. We were both doing running start and we're both still up there shredding. For as far as first ga- first days go, was it was it a good day? Were there any uh rough moments? Oh, I can't remember that specifically. I mean, I'm sure it was not a rough day because you get a little bit of slack on your first day. But there's this excitement and this buzz in the air because not only is it your your first day of work, but it's the first day that the ski area is open. So everybody is just like thriving off of this communal energy and like vibration at its highest level. And the stoke is always high. Like that's probably one of the best things about working up at the ski area is that like your colleagues might not always be stoked, but the people coming to ski and snowboard are almost always stoked. Like 98% of the time you're dealing with super happy, super stoked people. It's easy for like long time seasonal workers to get jaded. I think, um, I mean, I even found it in sea kayaking as well, like, and road cycling for that matter. You're kind of seeing the same stuff all the time and you're living that lifestyle a hundred percent of the time. And you kind of lose sight about like the, the client and the client's experience and how they haven't ever experienced it. And so reflecting back to those like first days where you're still new and you're still learning And remembering that feeling is really important in kind of like your sustainable lifestyle as a seasonal worker. You know, you don't always have clients when you're guiding that are outwardly expressive. It's kind of, again, trying not to take it personally when they're being quiet. Like maybe they're just taking it all in and remembering that this is a new experience for them. How can I make this like the best new experience? That has really transitioned into my guiding career particularly. Yeah. I think that's one of the most important lessons you learn later in seasonal. It's like, you know, kind of put the ego and all that away and just, you know, make sure you're helping people have a great time and facilitating their experience. My last trip of the summer was really spectacular and super special. And at this point, You know, my season biking out in the San Juans was only six weeks and I knew that I was ready to move on. Like at that point, I had been searching for kind of new summer opportunities. So I knew that that was potentially going to be my last ever trip with this company or in this place. It was a six-day bike trip with just a family of three. So mom was celebrating her birthday and the son had just graduated high school. And dad, who's normally super busy, is like just taking this time to have the full week off. It's kind of this like culmination of very excited energy. And this woman that the mom that I was working with, She is like one of the most high energy people I think I've ever met in my entire life. So going into it, like knowing this is my last week, you can kind of take it two ways, right? You can have a little bit of classic senioritis 
and just be like, okay, let's just get through this last week. Or you can bring to the table everything you've brought to every other trip. And that's a really important part about seasonal work is that as the season gets later and later, uh, it gets harder and harder to perform at that higher level because you're just, you're really fatigued. You're emotionally fatigued. You might even be physically fatigued, especially as, you know, a five-day trip gets into day five, you're usually physically fatigued, just kind of burnt out on maybe the industry or the specific job overall. That was definitely like one of my bigger accomplishments of even just the summer is going into that last week, matching that energy that mom had so that I can keep her stoked and keep dad and son stoked. And it was like one of the hardest working trips I ever had. I went above and beyond on many different aspects. We like went and watched a meteor shower um, in the middle of the week for her birthday. So her birthday's in August. She always goes and watches the Perseid meteor shower. And that's like their ritual. So the night of the Perseid meteor shower that was her birthday that we wanted to go watch, it was the night before we had to catch a ferry at 8 a.m. to go to the next island. So as the guide, you usually take that opportunity in the evening to make sure you've got all of your, everything that you need to be going to the next island. You've got all your bikes in perfect repair. You've got all the food that you need. You've got your coolers packed with fresh ice. And there's a lot of work that kind of goes into it behind the scenes that your clients aren't seeing. And I guess I could have been more specific that these are van assisted trips. So they're kind of bougie. My clients stay in hotels every night. So we offer camping trips as well. Um, but this is just kind of a higher level trip, um, a more luxurious trip rather. Um, so anyway, we're watching this meteor shower until midnight the night before we've got to, you know, I've got to get up at six and start packing everything. And in order to pick them up in time to get in the ferry lane in time to get on the boat in time. Um, and we made it work. And it was awesome. And it was so beautiful and really special for these guys, of course. And then just throughout the rest of the remainder of the trip, just plugging away to make sure that like, I'm stoked, they're stoked. I'm giving it my all through the very end. Yeah. It sounds like the, uh, the final exam of the seasonal of the season, you, you knocked it out of the park. Yeah, I really, I really did. I really did. I think I also got the biggest tip I've ever gotten in my entire life. So in in this case, like all of that extra hard work was recognized and noticed. And it feels really good at the end to just get a really great tip. Sometimes you put in all of that same amount of energy and work and the tip doesn't necessarily, it doesn't feel like it covers it. Right. So you always have to know that I used to get really bummed out. I used to work really, really, really hard and then get so bummed when I didn't get that awesome tip that I was hoping and expecting. And, and then I just started reminding myself throughout the week, like I'm still going to give it my all, but I can't expect anything in return. So what, 
went into the decision to go into nursing? I know you've had your, uh, you've been woofer for a long time, but sort of what was the drive behind that? I think that there's a, a lot of things, you know, and when my professors ask me like, oh, why do you want to be a nurse? Kind of the best answer to tell anybody is that you really want to help people. So um, at the base of everything, I know that that's true. I want to help people. I am definitely a person who like my love language is giving to others in, in any way that I can. So that aligns with my personality really well. I think the the bigger picture and how it fits into my life is that once you're a nurse for like a year or two, you can start going into travel nursing and that's an entirely different level of seasonal work. It's like you're a professional and you're making a professional wage that's consistent and reliable and anywhere in the United States and anywhere in the world for that matter. Um, But at the same time, you can take just three month contracts and sometimes you can extend that to be six months or nine months. But once your three month contract is over, you get to pack up and go somewhere else. So the drive to be in nursing is to have some of the stability that I need in life, but for it to fuel my continuation of seasonal work and to fuel the ability to travel and to recreate for fun or maybe as well as a guide, but at, you know, as a secondary means of income. And I guess my kind of, at this point, my future ideal job would be to work as a nurse and take travel assignments depending on the season and depending on the location, you know, we did, um, my partner works in MRI. And so he took a travel assignment in Sacramento about two years ago. Um, they, California had a really, really good winter two years ago. And he is a extreme whitewater kayaker. Like it is his passion. It is the thing that I cannot ever imagine stopping him from doing. So we went down there for three months and he had an awesome whitewater kayaking season. And then he would be working three days in MRI. So basing, you know, you can, you can still be working as a travel nurse, but also still be playing in really cool, unique places, depending on what time of year it is and what activity you want to do. And then when your contract ends, and so going back to kind of my future goal is I want to be like a Grand Canyon raft guide and go on, you know, 18 day trips, maybe pick up a couple of those when I'm not nursing, that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like uh, the way to do it. <laughs> Being Grand Canyon kayak guide and then the travel nursing the rest of the year following following the seasons that you want to enjoy for for somebody like you it sounds like that's that's the perfect world there yeah I'm really really looking forward to it and right now I'm like in the pit of winter quarter studying like the cardiac respiratory system which is one of the most complex systems in the human body 
and it feels really bad. <laughs> it's like I sit in my office, which is in my house, and I sit and study so many hours of the day. And it's hard to even consider getting out and doing things right now because I'm juggling everything. So I have to remind myself that the future is so bright. The future is so bright. <laughs> yeah, just look towards the future. It, it surprised me when you said you were you're in nursing school, but then you were also volunteering your time to do the AVI courses, which yeah. getting the free pass makes sense. But also I'm thinking, how much free time do you actually have in nursing school? Yeah, I mean... If you can prioritize your time well, you can end up with some pretty good time to yourself, but sometimes it's it's just hard to manage everything, yeah. Especially yeah, when I'm volunteering. You know, I'm I'm not volunteering a whole lot like this month I had three two days. Last month I had two days. But when you look at it in a week's worth of time, and all of a sudden, one day is gone to being up at the mountain all day. Definitely prevents you from getting any studying done. So you factor that in. Like this afternoon, my partner wants to go on a mountain bike ride. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. If, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to be able to make it. And I think that that's part of doing your time, right? And we experience that even in the seasonal lifestyle. So my first year kayak guiding, like, wow, I was really doing my time. I didn't make that much money. It's really just learning the skills. I was living definitely paycheck to paycheck. And even my second year kayak guiding because I switched companies. So I was a first year guide for them. And, you know, you don't get paid for a lot of the training that you do. So you're kind of biding your time and being patient and remembering that the future is bright. And here I am seven years later and so thankful that I kind of got into that lucrative business. Like I, I remember when I got hired for the wilderness therapy company, I actually got hired maybe a month before I was going to go do raft guide training over in Leavenworth. And looking back on that moment now, raft guides, and raft guiding isn't nearly as lucrative as a business as sea kayak guiding. Um, so my shift into sea kayaking and kind of the amount of money I was able to save throughout the summers allowed me to be a ski bum in the winters and not make that much money in the winter. And it allowed me to travel throughout the shoulder season and not have to worry about not making money. Um, so I think there's... I know that probably everybody talks about this in your podcast is that there is a real dynamic of the money that you can accumulate while you're working and making it last when you're not. Yeah. You have to be, for the most part, you have to be financially creative. Um, at least that is the, the, the few best, years, the first years. Yeah. That's the best way I've ever heard anybody describe it. <laughs> <laughs> Whether you're a dirt bag or you know somebody that does have a really high paying job one of the seasons, you the rest of the time you still have to figure it out, make it work. 
I mean, I have slept on so many overnight buses all over the world so that I can avoid paying for a hostel room, but also get to where I need to go in the same stroke. (laughs) And I really appreciate being a dirtbag and living paycheck to paycheck and learning how to be financially creative because it has allowed me to do so many things. Do you have a travel love story that maybe you can throw at us? The first time I ever traveled was when I was in the recreation program. And um, Miranda actually found a super sweet internship down in Ecuador. They were looking for maybe a couple other people who wanted to come down. And that was kind of a goal for my internship was that I wanted to leave. I wanted to go do something new. So that was the first time I ever left home. And I flew to Ecuador with like, obviously way too much stuff. I also brought like a whole bag of split boarding gear because after Ecuador, I flew down to Chile and I met up with some friends and we did a split board mission down there. But I remember like getting to the airport in Guayaquil, which is like, oh, it's this busy, busy coastal city in Ecuador. And from there I had to get a taxi to go to the bus station. And you know, my my manager who I was gonna come work for was like, make sure you don't pay more than two dollars and fifty cents for the taxi because they'll try and rip you off. And so then I'm trying to speak in my broken high school level Spanish to get to the bus station and somebody finally understood me. And then I got there. When I got there, somebody offered to carry my bag and I was like, sweet. Yeah, that's awesome. But then of course you have to give the guy a tip who carries your bag. And so I was I was slow on that one. (laughs) And then I got on the bus and then the bus ride is like four hours winding up into the mountains and they're passing other buses on blind corners, like all of the classic stuff that you experienced or read or see in other countries. And I got off the bus and I was kind of standing on the street in the middle of nowhere. And somebody walked up to me and said, Oh, are you Krista? And I was like, yeah. And it was my manager. And I just thought like, how did that work so easily? Like, how did all of that just happen? I just left home. I was crying on the airplane because I was leaving my boyfriend. Oh my gosh. I was crying, 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 basically the whole way there. And then I got there and I have no idea how that all went together so smoothly. And every time I travel, it's that same feeling. I um, I moved to New Zealand for a working holiday visa two years ago. And I, I lived in New Zealand for a year. And it was the same thing getting ready to go. You know, I had a mountain bike with me and a bunch of shit, (laughs) like so much stuff that again, you're like, gosh, why did I travel with so many things? Like I didn't need to bring my bottles of shampoo in my care and my checked baggage. I could have just bought new shampoo. I'm still learning, but I remember having a lot of anxiety, like, oh, is all of my luggage going to get there? Is my bike going to be there when I show up? Is it going to be in good condition? Like, how am I going to get to the hostel? How am I going to get a ride four hours south to the place where I'm buying a car? All of this stuff. And, and then you get there and 
I remember like writing in my journal, I don't even know why I was so worried to begin with. So you have to constantly remind yourself like the first step like out the door and driving to the airport is probably the hardest or deciding and committing that you're going to go. That's the hardest part. Um, Right now, that's especially the hardest part because with the COVID pandemic, like I know a lot of people are still traveling. I know that you, you can still travel, but it's that first step committing to traveling right now is just really difficult for me. And I don't know if that's going to change with widespread vaccinations or maybe finding more time outside of nursing school, but I'm hoping that my traveling gets a little bit more back to normal. Yeah. One of the things that I, I tell people that are new to it or thinking about doing traveling or seasonal work is there's no way that I'll ever be able to get you to believe me, but everything, almost everything you're afraid of after you've done it, you're going to laugh. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like the time that my debit card got stolen when I was crossing the border from Peru to Ecuador. So I, so I went to, I was at that same bus terminal that I was telling you about earlier and I had the opportunity. I could take a four hour bus to the coast to a little party town, or I could take a four hour bus back into the mountains and go meet up with my like manager, stay with him and his family and kind of sort it out. I basically had no money <laughs> and I had found $5, which was enough to get me a bus ticket to the beach or to the mountains. And I took the bus to the beach <laughs> because I wanted to go to the beach, of course. Once I got there, I had met so many people throughout my time in Ecuador that I was able to borrow $20 from a bartender, which was so generous. Like $20 in Ecuador is like somebody lending you, I don't know, $100 in the States. Really generous. Um, Was able to like, I actually just went and bought a bottle of rum, a bag of ice, and a bottle of Coke. And we just had drinks all evening. And then the next day, my mom was able to wire me some money, but then that money got stolen later that day. Oh, no. So then I had to message my mom later that day and say, yeah, mom, I got the money, but it got stolen. Can you send me some more? And she did. Um, Luckily, I was only in South America for about another two or three weeks at that point. So I used the money that she sent me and I spread it out until like I gave the last of that money to my taxi driver when he dropped me off at the airport in Colombia because I had made my way all the way back up to Colombia. And I was, by the end of it, I was just eating rice. Like I would go to the store and buy a bag of rice for like 40 cents and a couple vegetables. Because, and even when I got in the taxi, I told the taxi driver, I was like, this is all the money that I have. Can you get me to the airport? Is that okay? And he was like, oh yes, that's fine. He's like, I get this one every day. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I'm sure. Right. Yeah. So after all of that situation, like my last two and a half weeks in South America of my first trip of my life, you know, this is after 
five months of traveling. Like that was pretty rough. But looking back, it was like, gosh, that was the time of my life. You can't make that up. And you like you're while well, my parents would have a heart attack, like it wasn't bad. It just wasn't bad. It was fine. You know that everything's gonna work out. You meet the nicest people along the way. It always works out because it has to. Like there's just no other option. Just exactly. do it, right? It just happens. It might it not happen out. exactly how you think it's gonna happen, which is part of the fun. Yeah, the adventure starts when the plan breaks down. Yeah, totally. Yeah. What advice would you give um, either high school or college person that wanted to start traveling or working seasonally? Like how, how should they look and uh, start moving on that, that goal, that future? Um, something that I did is that, you know, you make hay while the sun shines. So you're working seasonally and you save, 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 save. And like one of probably the best things that happened for me is I kind of stopped drinking while I was working seasonally. A lot of these seasonal jobs is huge party scene. If you aren't spending money on drinks and you're saving it, that goes directly to like one drink at a bar in Friday Harbor, which is on the San Juan Islands would buy you five drinks at a bar in Baja. So you start doing these like, cross matches and you start planning you start looking at what you want to do and where you want to go there's kind of two different types of traveling you're traveling because you want to see a country and then you're traveling because you want to do an activity and trying to line those things up is really really cool so doing the planning asking other people questions and mentally preparing yourself and then just doing it Saving the money, buying the tickets. That's probably the biggest step is buying the tickets because then you're really committed. As time moves on and you start thinking about traveling, it can be really easy to just put it off and then you don't end up going traveling. People have so many excuses why they can't do this or why they can't do that. And they get trapped in this mentality that they have to prevent that that they can't go because they have x y or z to do but if not now then when yeah so my biggest piece of advice is do a little planning and just do it because a lot of people think that they have to like speak the language or like prepare in these extreme ways but really the only preparation you need is to just buy the plane ticket good advice well, Krista, it's been wonderful talking to you. We covered a lot of stuff and it was great listening to your story. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having this conversation with me. It's really exciting to take a trip down memory lane and maybe inspire myself to do some more traveling in the coming months. Yeah, That's it. That's the episode. The seasonals are Kelly Mogg, Ryan Deininger, me, Joey Ravinsky. The theme song by... Ryan Deininger, Joe Williams, Louis Leva, Chappie, Thomas Hamilton. Follow us on Instagram at the seasonals underscore. Like us on Facebook. Listen to our next episode. That's it. We're out.